Well, hey friends, welcome to another episode of Deeper Still, a podcast where we carve out space for meaningful conversation about God and life as we seek to pay attention to the ways he calls us to go deeper still in relationship with him and with one another. My name is Sue Ann Camfield. I have the joy of being the host of this podcast and as always, my friends, I'm so glad you're here today. Well, I hope your summer has been off to a great start. We have changed up our rhythms here a little bit at Deeper Still for this summer season. We have been cranking away with an every other week schedule for the last probably seven months or so. But for the health of our own souls, for the health of my soul, I've decided to take a little bit of a slower schedule this summer just to take a bit of a breath to enjoy being present with the people I love, to soak in some sunshine, and my friends to just be, which is exactly what I hope your summer is all about as well. It's also a great time that if you are new to the Deeper Still community and you want to explore our library, go back and check out some of those past episodes, see some of the amazing guests that we've had, or maybe you've been hanging around for a little while and just have gotten behind. You've gotten lazy, my friends, right? And you want to catch up a little bit. It's the perfect time this summer to go back and catch some of those episodes of Deeper Still you haven't had a chance to listen to. And of course, be sure to share those with a friend. Well, today I am so, so excited about the guests that we have on Deeper Still. We are welcoming best-selling author, speaker, and pastor John Ortberg. If you would have told me a few years ago when I started Deeper Still that I would be interviewing John Ortberg, I don't know what I would have thought, but I'm not sure I would have believed you. And to be honest, my friends, as we went into today's episode, I had a pretty healthy dose of nerves going into this interview, but I just have to say... John was about as gracious and kind and about as easy of a conversation partner as I've ever had. And so I'm so incredibly grateful for him just diving in, making it comfortable and being such a great conversation partner. John has been in ministry and leadership for more than 40 years and teaches a lot around this theme of spiritual formation, which you are going to hear over and over again in our conversation today, especially as we talk about how the main thing that God gets out of our lives is not anything we do, but it's always about the person we are becoming. I love that word becoming, and John and I are going to talk quite a bit about that today. Currently, John leads a ministry called Become New, which you can check out online. John has some great teachings that are about 10 to 12 minutes long. They are deep, they are rich, they are helpful, they are good, and they focus on helping us grow spiritually just one day at a time, and so I would encourage you to check those out. Also, for those of you who call Christ Church home, or if you want to follow us online, Please note, mark your calendars, that John will be preaching live on our Oak Brook campus on July 16th. So be sure to join us for that. You're not going to want to miss it. All right. Well, I'm excited about this conversation, so let's get to it. My friends, whatever you're doing, wherever you find yourself on the journey today, saddle up, settle in, and listen in as John and I go deeper still. Well, welcome, John, to Deeper Still. It is such an honor and a privilege to have you here today. Oh, Sue thank you very much. I love being with you. I love getting to talk about life and faith and how change happens. Uh, I love being connected with the Chicago area. I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, not real far from where you are. And 
knew uh, Art DeKreider together on the board at Fuller and have known Dan for many years. So lots and lots of connections that go way back there with Oak Brook and all of that makes this a real joy. Well, I, I love that. I was actually uh, talking to Dan about you yesterday for a few minutes and I just yeah. said, Dan, tell me what I need to know, any insight you have. And uh, one of the things he shared, other than just saying how easy you would be to talk to, which I appreciate that. But he said, I think you've been the longest standing or one of the longest standing people on the Fuller board that you have been <laughs> part of that community for ever and ever, he said. Well, uh, makes me feel as old as Methuselah. <laughs> And uh, I think Dan is very close to as old as I am. Um, but uh, that, that uh, relationship with Fuller Seminary has been very formative and life-giving for me, as for lots of folks. And it's part of that kind of tribe of just um, thoughtful, deeply engaged, culturally aware, uh, deeply devoted to Jesus, but non-separatist tribe of the Christian faith that I know Oak Brook is a deep part of and that uh, I dearly, dearly love. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I got to make my first trip out to Fuller just a couple weeks ago. And so mm. it's the first time I was on campus and saw it, but I got a, a sentiment of that. And there's a couple of questions I'll ask you a little bit later about that community specifically and some of the overlaps um, that we have here at Oak Brook of just what we're trying to do as a church and the conversations we're trying to cultivate and a very difficult time to have conversations with people and how important yeah. that is. So we're not going to go there yet. Uh, I want to ask you some other questions before we get there. But I, th I thought we could just start. You know, I was thinking about when I when I first got the green light to interview you, I was so excited. And I thought I get to have a conversation with John Ortberg. And then I went to bed that night and I was laying in bed and I thought, oh, my gosh. I'm having a conversation with John Orberg. <laughs> and I started to think of over these last couple of months, all of the things I wanted to talk to you about mm -hmm. and where we were going to start. And my husband very kindly, as he left the house today said, you know what, just don't say anything stupid. So I thought, well, okay, great. I'll try not to say anything stupid. Well, great I, encouragement from a husband. It's, 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 it's very kind of you, Sue Ann, but my <laughs> wife can tell you very quickly it is not much of a thrill to have a conversation with John Orberg. So keep the expectation bar real low. Uh, Nothing like a spouse to humble us, right? Totally. Yep. Well, you have been just, I mean, through your books, through your preaching, through your teaching, you've been a voice that has shaped my own life. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for just everything you've done for the church, for the kingdom, um, shaping souls across the globe. I just really uh, admire and appreciate you for that. And I thought, well, where should we start this conversation? And and I thought maybe a great place to start was um, with some of the things you're doing now with Become New. Mm. And I, I love this ministry. I love what it's all about. I get super excited about the word becoming because it's been such a, a word in my own life that has shaped and transformed me. So let's start there and your passion to see people live into this idea of becoming. Where'd the idea for Become New come from? Uh, what is it for people listening that don't really know much about uh, what you're doing with that? And why is it so important for people to know today? Uh, uh, thank you very much. I love that word too. Um, yeah, Become New itself is uh, real simple. It's an online kind of a teaching spiritual resource ministry where uh, I will, uh, I love to learn. So I'll try to learn, read, study, experience. And then for about 10 or 12 minutes each day, Monday through Friday, uh, teach out um, something that I think could help folks 
try to pursue God and uh, live well on a daily basis. And the word become mostly was inspired by Dallas Willard. Some of the folks listening to us might know Dallas. He was a philosopher who was a remarkable thinker. Um, he taught at USC for many, many decades and has written about life and faith and God and how we get formed spiritually in ways that have impacted lots and lots of us uh, very deeply. The amazing thing about Dallas is that as great as his mind was, and he was the smartest guy I ever knew, I would never get in an argument with him because I was afraid he would prove I don't exist. Um, <laughs> but as good as his mind was, his life was better. And when you were with Dallas, you would just be intensely aware this is somebody for whom the reality of the presence of God is as real um, as this desk or this chair is for me. And one of the things that Dallas would often say is the main thing God gets out of your life is the person you become. Um, it's not your resume. It's not your accomplishments. Those things all are have an external dimension to them that is quite temporal and that we tend to be impressed with, um, but that will pass away as all temporal things will. But actually the person that you become, your character, your mm -hmm. mind, you will take that into eternity. You will literally take that into eternity. Um, and that's what matters the most, but we all tend to forget that. So the main thing God gets out of your life is the person that you become. And actually, that's the main thing that we all get out of our lives. And so that notion of how do I become that person, um, that's mm -hmm. what inspired the name. And that's what I think about each time I think about that phrase, become new. Mm -hmm. I love it. I, I remember very specifically a moment in my own life. Uh, Adele Calhoun was a beloved pastor here. She wrote the book, The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, as well as many other mm -hmm. books. And uh, she was a mentor of mine and we were on a walk one day and I was probably in my early thirties and, uh, was really feeling a calling on my life to do more ministry, to write, to, to maybe be on staff at a church. I really didn't know what any of that looked like. And, uh, Adele was a person who I'd often go to and, and just say, gosh, I don't help me, help me figure this out. If someone would just tell me what to do, I will do it, you know, yeah. I'm looking for the writing in the sky. And I remember one day we were on a walk and, um, I've told this story hundreds of times and my listeners have, have heard this. So forgive me for that. People who are listening, but we were on a walk and, um, I said, Adele, I just, I want someone to tell me what to do. And she said, you know what? So have, have you ever thought about, instead of asking what you're supposed to do to start asking who you want to be? Hmm. And I remember being kind of frustrated with her when she asked me that, because I thought that's not helpful to me, <laughs> but it shifted everything for me because I started asking that question. What if the moments when, you know, as I'm moving through life, what if I just start asking God, who, who do you want me to be? What is the kind of person that you are creating me to become so that I can reflect your love, your light, your, your presence, your grace in this world. And when you start asking those questions, I really do find it changes everything. Yeah. I, I love that wisdom from her and that that landed on you in that way. Um, I think often finding a really good question is way more valuable than finding a really good answer. Mm -hmm. Um, because with a great question, you can just live with it and come back to it over and over again in new situations. 
And I'd say my experience was very much like yours. Um, you know, when I went into graduate school, I was mostly studying psychology and I thought I was going to become a psychologist. And, um, but I, I didn't really enjoy doing therapy. I value it and I wasn't very good at it. People would get less healthy as they saw me longer. And I was working at a church and liked that quite a lot. And I can remember often praying, God, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't care what it is. Uh, I'll do it. Just make it clear. And mm. God didn't. And that really violated my understanding of how prayer was supposed to work. And so I felt like either I'm praying wrong or God isn't keeping up his end of the bargain. And it took a long time for me, a little book by Dallas called Hearing God was really helpful, mm. where Dallas makes uh, that same point that Adele did, that um, God is more interested in the person that you're becoming than the particular thing that you're doing. And that actually uh, any parent knows with children, if we always told our kids, um, uh, make this choice, go to this school, choose this major, take this job, marry that person, and they just did what we told them, although that sounds attractive to us as parents sometimes, <laughs> that would not be a good thing because... Um, decision-making is an indispensable part of character formation. Mm. And so if that's true, and I think it is, then often for God, his will for us must be, Sue Ann, I want you to decide. And if God has something particular for you to do, he's perfectly capable of planting that thought or sending a book or a conversation or something to put that thought into your mind. However, a lot of times I think I have wanted to know the will of God more because I wanted to be relieved the anxiety that goes with having to make a difficult decision and carry the responsibility than out of spiritual altruism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, coming to accept that quite often I may face a difficult decision and pray and not get a particular direction from heaven and it doesn't mean I'm praying wrong or that God isn't leading. It's uh, that God knows I will grow more if I have to learn and study and reflect and mm -hmm. talk and pursue and think and decide and take responsibility than I would grow if I got a postcard. That's so good. And, you know, especially I think in our Western American culture, we don't like that answer. It's hard yeah. for us. We, we, you know, especially not only do we not like knowing, not only do we not like the uncertainty, but we don't like what we can't do it on our own, right? Yeah. When we can't just put all the pieces together and make it happen. And so I wonder, you know, nothing you're saying, um, it's, it's, you've been saying these things for a long time. You've been sitting with this stuff for a long time. And I'm wondering, there are people I imagine that come and, and hear this for the first time, or maybe they hear it in a different season of their life, so they hear it fresh mm -hmm. for the first time. I'm wondering, as you continue to teach and, and, and uh, speak about these things, what's the response you get from people? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think there about Jesus and that parable of a sower went to sow some seed and... Um, different people it's the same seed it's the same word but different people respond to it in real different ways and um i think that's true i think probably for me um 
one of the shifts over time has just been walking through life and going through difficult things and experiencing pain. And one of the discoveries has been um, the more that I experience pain and find God in difficult moments, um, uh, I'm able to meet people where they are walking through pain and mm-hmm. um, pain and difficulty and challenge is a unique place in which to find God and a unique place to find people. So I, I think more and more over time, probably a, a big discovery has been that I meet people much more in um, weakness, failure, and pain mm. than I do in wisdom, triumph, and strength. Mm. Um, uh, and, and and I think probably the other piece to it is um, uh, oh gosh, who was the guy? The guy that wrote on emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Goldman. Mm-hmm. Um, talks about when it comes to learning or training, he's thinking about it in a corporate setting, but it could be doing a church or any place else. There's kind of three mindsets when you do training. Some people will go there like a prisoner. I got to sit through this. Some people go there like it's a vacation. It's a day off work. And then some people go there with just a great hunger to learn. Like, oh man, this is, I'm really hungry for this. And so uh, I think to look for people who are really hungry to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the message that Soren went to so succeed. Just to look for um, where is it that people are really eager and hungry to talk about life and what really matters and faith. And um, that's what's most life given to me as I go on in life. Mm. Well, and it's interesting that pain does have a way of, of bringing us to those places mm-hmm. that challenge, that pain, that when we're in those desert seasons, that all of a sudden we start asking questions anew. We start looking at things differently. Um, and I was listening to uh, a talk you gave not, not too long ago in this last season of your life where you've been open about you know, some of the painful seasons that you've experienced, you've experienced some difficult things. And one of the things I loved that you had said was, you know, it's not actually what happens to you that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the battle is not out there that we are fighting. It's not our circumstances. But what's really important is actually what happens in you. Yeah. That difference between what's going on out there and and the difference between what God is actually doing in your own soul and in your own life. And I, I wonder, how do you process that? What is, what would you, um, how do you process that in your own life to learn it's more important about what's happening in you? And then you mentioned that, you know, this season for you has also created more empathy, more compassion. I think anytime, I know that's true in my own life, anytime we go through difficult things, it helps us walk with other people in difficult things. So let's pause there for a minute. It's, it's not what happens to you, but what happens in you. Say a little more about that. Um, so one of the thoughts that was really helpful to me in a difficult time of life where I was facing situations where the, the details don't really matter, but it was painful both around family stuff and also around it, work and ministry um, and in ways where there were aspects of it that I couldn't fix. And I think up until that point, very often in life, I would feel like if things are difficult, my job is to find a way to fix them. Uh, and then sooner or later, eventually, we all come to a situation where we're facing something where I can't actually fix them. And one of the thoughts that came that was really helpful was um, circumstances being okay 
is not an adequate foundation for life. Mm-hmm. And uh, until I had reached that point, I really thought if circumstances were not okay, um, then uh, I needed to have a conversation, find a person, find a resource, find a plan of action, find a program that I could engage in to make sure that this relationship or this work or this whatever would eventually be okay. But then in realizing, nope, it's not fixable, uh, mm-hmm. I realized I, I still have to keep going every day. The sun keeps coming up. I got to move forward. I got to uh, find ways to spend time. And so I need to find a place to stand uh, that's solid when it can't be circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so that's when that notion of um, God is my rock became much less abstract and much less theoretical. And uh, I learned how to say, even though a situation I want very much to fix may not be fixable, um, I can still move forward in life. I can still find a way to embrace life um, as I seek to be rooted in God. Mm-hmm. And um, another little passage that was quite helpful in 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 16. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. That's a great phrase. We don't lose heart. Um, although outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And so I would sometimes just write down, I still sometimes do this, what are ways in which I'm wasting away? And that can be um, aging and health. It could be reputation. It could be finances. It could be work. It could be any number of ways. And then in another column, what are ways that I'm being renewed today? I can... Mm. I can seek to love the people in my life today. I can seek to exercise courage. I can um, seek to serve somebody. Um, I can uh, seek to prepare for that moment that comes when I will let go of this life. So Mm -hmm. that notion that when fixing my circumstances is not available to me, meaning is always still possible. Mm -hmm. And inner renewal is always still possible. And distinguishing kind of those two realms, the outer realm, circumstances, what's visible, but then inner, what is not visible, my life with God, my character, the person that I'm becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always available for me to work on when circumstances may not be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're, again, we're not very good at that. We're not very good at, at yeah. wanting to, it doesn't feel efficient. It doesn't feel productive. It doesn't feel in a world where we're constantly being called to those things. Um, it doesn't always feel like the inner life is very productive. It's slow. It's a journey. It's mm-hmm. painful. Other people don't always see it. And so it, it, our tendency is, I think, to push away from it rather than embracing it a lot of times. Well, and I, I think we live in an age where because of things like technology and science, um, our ability to master the visible world is unprecedented. Mm. And so we're much more comfortable with that world. And we think about it a lot more and we start to feel like um, my outer world ought to be great. It should be just the way that I want it. It should be pleasant. I should have good work to do. I should have good health. My body should look good. And if all of that doesn't happen, somebody must have done something wrong and I should be able to sue them. (laughs) Right. Um, And for most of human history, it hasn't that way. Mostly people expect, um, you know, large numbers of children would die when they were still 
uh, children, childbirth was very dangerous. Drought, starvation was never very far away. Um, health was always precarious. Uh, economic well-being, even starvation. So uh, people used to live with the reality of the visible much more evident before them. And in many ways, although there's lots of advantages of living today, and I'm grateful that I do, there's a kind of blindness to it that I think most of us are not aware mm. of that makes it a lot harder to focus on what is not visible. Mm. Well, and not only a harder to focus on what's not visible, but I think because it's harder to focus on, and for some of us, maybe it's more abstract than we yeah. are comfortable with. I think the other thing that happens, and we, we're seeing this happen across our country, across our world, but then there's this incongruency between our inner and our outer life. And, you know, we see this in, in leadership and church world, especially, but we see it with our neighbors and our friends when we see people who are outwardly living or living a certain kind of life or putting on a certain kind of image. And then when inwardly they are not um, that same person, when there's an yeah. inconsistency between the mm -hmm. outer and the inner, we were, we uh, went through a sermon series. We're actually still in it right now at our church on the book of Galatians. And it's something we've been pressing into quite a bit about this difference between, you know, what is real and what is fake? What is an authentic faith? And what does that look like for people? And how, when, when our inner life and our outer life don't match and people see that then, it creates havoc. It creates havoc in our personal relationships when we're someone on the outside that we're not on the inside because we haven't paid attention to what's going on in the inside. Uh, it creates havoc for the church when the world doesn't experience us as people who are consistent. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I just, I've been sitting with that idea a lot. I, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on that, the importance of this congruency for us just as individuals who walk through our everyday life, but also for the church today, why is it important for us to be consistent and congruent with the person and the character of Jesus Christ? Yeah, um, it is an inevitable problem with human life. Um, and it's particularly a problem for people of faith, for spiritual communities. Um, you know, we are made to be um, whole integrated beings and for our soul to keep us united in our inner life, our thoughts, our feelings, our will, what it is that we choose and our bodies. And Dallas Willard used to say, one of the reasons that we love little kids, you know, one year olds is that they have not yet learned how to manage their face. Mm. So when you're looking at a little toddler and you see their face, you know exactly what's going on in their inner world. And if they're angry or delighted or frightened, um, you can see it. What happens as we grow older is we learn how to manage our face. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean to manage face? Well, I learn how to use my body to deceive you. So I may be inwardly thinking, how can I use you? Or... Um, how can I deceive you? Or how can I make you think that I like you when I really don't? Or think that I'm friendly towards you when I'm uh, actually gossiping about you? Or mm. And uh, this, this gets into us at the level of habit, at the you know, uh, subcutaneous level, so that we can't not do it. And so we battle with 
um, hypocrisy. It's interesting. There's a, an article by a scholar named Yves Gitte, and uh, she argues, you know, that word hypocrite, hypocritos, is a word that Jesus uses. I think it's 13 times. I think the only mm-hmm. times that word is used in the New Testament, uh, it's actually used by Jesus. And it's thought that Jesus actually coined the word. So um, uh, when we think about Christians or religious people who are hypocrites, it's striking. No one has ever critiqued that in a more devastating or painful way than Jesus himself did. Mm -hmm. And he would constantly teach about that contrast of the external versus the internal whitewashed tombs, you know, sepulchers. You clean the outside of the cup, but you don't uh, take care of the inside. And I think uh, that issue of hypocrisy or inauthenticity is particularly bad for religious people, spiritual people, because our aspirations are so high. Because I want to think of myself as somebody that God loves and somebody who is kind and somebody who is honest and somebody who is obedient. So I actually have um, extra pressure on me to try to make it look that way to other people mm. and even try to convince myself that I'm that way. And, um, and then what happens is there's hiddenness and pretense. And part of what's very striking is that um, hiddenness and pretending is maybe the greatest force to short circuit spiritual healing in the human condition. Um, uh, it's really interesting if you think of, uh, folks who are part of a 12 step community, people that go to AA, AA, um, you know, the first statement is, hi, my name is John. I'm an alcoholic. And so I start and, and anybody who's ever said those words has had to fight through enormous resistance, pain, utter humiliation. So it's not just a word. It's, that's Mm -hmm. a journey to get to that point. And to come into a place where um, I can say that, and then I know the response from other people will be, hi, John, they will accept me deeply. So a guy named Kent Dunnington writes about this, and he says, what AA realizes is that uh, the recognition and confession of personal inadequacy is itself a spiritual achievement that needs to be ritualized and rewarded. Not just personal inadequacy, but the recognition and confession of my personal inadequacy. So the church ought to be a place where the recognition and confession of personal inadequacy is rewarded. But very often the temptation in churches is for me to want to say, nope, I'm doing great. I love Mm -hmm. Jesus. My life is going really well. And of course, the classic story in the New Testament is Ananias and Sapphira you know, who uh, do a good thing. They sell stuff and they give uh, part of the proceeds, but they pretend to be better than they actually are. And they both end up being killed. And that used to strike me as a really severe story. But what I came to realize was that's really the first instance in the New Testament church where hiddenness and pretending sneaks back into the human condition. Hmm. So just like at the fall back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve go to hide, um, in the New Testament, where that occurs is with Ananias and Sapphira. And the one thing that God cannot do is to bring healing to people 
when they are in hiding. And that's why it's so devastating to spiritual life and spiritual community, inauthenticity, hiddenness. Mm -hmm. You are only as healthy as your secrets. Um, so that issue, how do we create relationships and communities um, where we can come out of hiding into the light, where there is the recognition and confession of personal inadequacy, mm. man, that's just as core as it gets. Well, and how do you get, how do you move people to that point? Because we live in this world where everyone's afraid. I mean, we're our church context. I love our church, right. um, but we are in a, we are in a context uh, and a lot of churches find themselves in this place where, you know, uh, we are often ruled by uh, image and affluence and how well our kids are behaving and what schools they're going to and, you know, all the things. Mm -hmm. It's not unique to us. It's it's all the things. And so it's like this. We get into this uh, self-perpetuating cycle of holding up the image because we want people to think certain things about us. And yet when when there are things going on behind the scenes that we don't want to confess, that we're, we're afraid of how people might see us, it just perpetuates the very thing that you're you're saying will actually heal us yeah. because we're hiding it. And so how do you get people to get beyond that point of saying, you know, this is a safe place? Or how do you create a community that's a safe place where people can can be fully known? I, I heard a, heard you say recently, you can only be loved to the extent you are known. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that's that sounds so beautiful on paper. And yet that's so scary to live out. Yep. And uh you can only be fully loved if you're fully known. Because mm. as long as you don't know the deepest parts about me, you may say you love me, but inside I will always tell myself, yeah, but if you knew this about me, then you might not. Um, you know, it's interesting. So many people, uh, often Christian teachers, speakers, writers, will, will ask the question, how come the church can't be more like an AA meeting mm. if you've ever been to one? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is it can, as long as church attenders are willing to be more like alcoholics. <laughs> and often, you know, the paradoxical gift of something like addiction is um, it brings along with it the gift of desperation, the gift of desperate need. Mm -hmm. And um, when I get to a point where I'm desperate and uh, pain will often do that, that's why pain often is such a, uh, paradoxical and unwanted, but helpful spiritual gift. Failure mm -hmm. can be that way. Um, when I get to the point where I say, now I got nothing to lose. Um, that's why often when people get exposed in the midst of wrongdoing, it becomes a turnaround moment in their life because then um, they no longer have anything to hide or anything to lose. And they find strangely, um, God is the healer of shame. And the only way for our shame to be healed really is to bring it into the light. And so um, uh, hitting bottom, uh, mm -hmm. experiencing great pain, that's one of the ways to get there. So anybody who listens to us right now might pray and ask for the gift of desperate need, pain, mm -hmm. humiliation, and shame. But they probably won't, and I understand <laughs> that. Um, I, I think another way of going after that uh, is simply to teach about the importance of it and um, uh, for people to tell their stories. Yeah. And it's very striking. You, you, you may have seen this last year, there was a, a kind of a news story that came out of a school, religious college called Asbury, where there was mm -hmm. kind of a revival of spiritual movement there. Yeah. And when I read about it, uh, uh, 
it began, and I hadn't known this, but I knew that it would be true. Uh, it began with a time of corporate confession when some students began to tell about uh, shame and failure in their own lives. And revival is kind of a funky word. At its core, it's a wonderful thing to be brought back to life. Um, humanly, they can often be accompanied by great emotion, sometimes a, ma a manipulation, sometimes they can come and go. So they are uh, a good but a limited good. But um, when they come and they do good, uh, almost always folks that study these sorts of things will say um, uh, at the core of them will be the experience of somebody confessing something deep. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that will somehow give permission to others and it will somehow model for people, oh, it's possible to tell this deep, dark secret. And instead of it ended up killing me, it actually ends up healing me. And when the church is at its best, um, it does that in ways that are deeply healing. Now, yes. um, it can also be um, misused um, in cults. One of the marks of cults is there will be often coercive pressure to force people to disclose shame and secret against their will or without informed consent. And... Uh, if I tell my deepest secrets to somebody who is not trustworthy, um, they can use them to shatter lives. So mm -hmm. it's a process that requires a lot of wisdom and a lot of health. But I think there's no question the biggest damage in our churches are, is, tends to be done not by people sharing too much about themselves, but people walking around with their deepest, darkest secrets undisclosed and therefore unhealed. And so mm -hmm. to find wise ways to teach about the importance of self-examination and confession, and then to create structures by which people can begin to step into the light with wisdom and trusted others, that's at the core of spiritual vitality. And we will never have that in a deep way um, without having that practice of very deep self-examination and uh, ultimately um, transparent confession. Mm. And, you know, if anyone's ever been on, you know, if you've had that experience where you do get to a place of transparency and confession, and then someone extends grace to you yeah. and they accept you, it's, it's transformative. I mean, it's been one of the most transformative experiences in my own life. And I think when someone, when you can experience that, not only does it change you and make you safe uh, or feel like you're in a safe place, but then you can extend that same grace, that same um, safety to other people. And it, it just is this cycle. If we can do grace upon grace upon grace, it's hard to get there. Mm -hmm. um, but when you start to be, you get a taste of it and you start to be changed by it. You say, oh, I want, we need more of that. I want yeah. more of that. And yeah. so... Um, good stuff. You know, I didn't intend for us to have this conversation. We said before we started, we don't know exactly where this conversation is going. So mm -hmm. we just dove off the deep end. So thanks for, thanks for taking us there. I want to, I want to shift gears just a little bit. Um, one of the things I, you know, I said, I talked to Dan Meyer, lead pastor yesterday, he and I were chatting about you a little bit. And I think one of the things that, uh, we have really focused on as a church, I think that makes us uh, maybe unique, maybe not. I, I don't know. But uh, in this day and age when our world is so polarized, when we are divided over race, over politics, over sexuality, over multitude of issues in this world, our church is really 
tried to find a third voice, a third way, we mm-hmm. call it, through that, to step outside of political platforms, to step outside of some of the narratives of the world and say, what really is the way of Jesus in all of this? What is the way of becoming mm-hmm. in all of this? And our church has really tried, um, and Dan has led the way so beautifully on really trying to step into those those places, difficult places, as as a third voice. And he said that you are, you are a partner in that with your work at Fuller and, and just your heart of really trying to be a gracious third voice. And I think the conversation we've been having already gives us a window into where that grace comes from, why you think that's important. But I- I'm wondering, as we take a step back and think about the church globally today, why do you think that's important um, for the church today? What does the church need to be in this world right now? What do we need to bring to the table that starts to bring some of this healing to the world at large so the church can be seen as a safe place where that can yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, there's a book by a sociologist, James Davidson Hunter, called To Change the World. And um, uh, one of the dynamics that he talks about in the book is that when a society is healthy, um, there are lots of different spheres that flourish. So art, education, philanthropy, religion, people are deeply engaged in it. Um, uh, They're quite vibrant communities. He said, when a society begins to fragment and fracture and uh, become more toxic, everybody tends to gravitate towards politics. Mm. And he said, the reason for this is that politics is the only spheres that has coercive power available to it. Um, Only in politics do you have access to the military and law so that you can make people do stuff. And so what happens in a fragmented society is everybody starts to think the only way to change the world is to grab political power. And that if you are not grabbing political power, then you are not really relevant. And if you are really relevant then you will make it really clear what your political commitments are and what party you adhere to and how we all got to go out there and make sure that our group is in control. Mm. Um, And I thought that was a fascinating observation. And uh, uh, what's remarkable, of course, when you think about Jesus is that he very deliberately rejects that road. And when the people want to make him king, Uh, he says, no. And he says things like my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's not built on coercive power or give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give unto God the things that are God's. That would have been news to Caesar that there were things that did not belong to Caesar. Um, And that actually what Jesus understood is um, coercive power is really very limited. And you might grab it for a moment Um, You know, we're seeing right now in this moment, as we think about things like abortion and reproductive rights and so on, uh, the courts overturned Roe versus Wade. But all of a sudden you see if people's hearts and minds have not been changed, then all of a sudden one side or the other having the levers of politics in their hands is of much more limited capacity than what they thought until the mind and the heart of people is changed. Coercion can only do so much. And that's what Jesus recognized. And that's why uh, 
you know, Caesar had lots and lots of coercive power in the Roman Empire. Caesar's impact in our day, um, you know, in our day, we're still naming people after Peter, Paul and Mary, but we give our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. Um, coercion just ain't worth a whole lot. Mm-hmm. The vision and message of Jesus continues to compel, captures hearts and minds and souls in ways that naked power never does. So that's why I believe in our day, um, really, I think politics has become the new legalism. Mm. When I grew up back in Rockville, Illinois, um, legalism, the way that we would tell who's the sheep, who's the goats, who's inside, outside, in my kind of church tended to be, um, don't drink, don't swear, don't dance, um, uh, don't smoke, that kind of stuff. Those codes, for the most part, are pretty weak, but legalism never goes away. In our day, I think, very often, including inside the church, the new legalism is really legalism of thought. And uh, a writer named Joseph Bottom wrote that uh, we have this sneaking suspicion that how we vote will save our souls. Mm. And so if you embrace my ideology, um, you're on my side in the culture wars, you're on my side politically, you're one of the good ones and their side is the bad ones. And we wanna all go to our websites and watch our cable channels. And, and it could not be farther from the message of Jesus. Jesus himself, when he was assembling his small group, uh, he chose Matthew who was a tax collector who collaborated with the Roman empire. And he chose Simon the Zealot who was committed to the violent overthrow of the Roman Empire and put them both in the same small mm-hmm. group uh, and said, okay, now you both learn how to follow me. So I think to say um, uh, the church is meant to be, uh, it, certainly, it certainly will have big ramifications around politics as around every other sphere, but we do not look to the political sphere to bring about salvation. We follow Jesus and anybody of any political or cultural stripe is welcome to come here and to follow Jesus. And he has a plan to change the human heart and the human soul and to bring shalom. And we want to be kingdom bringers and shalom spreaders beginning with our own lives. And that good news is available to Mm -hmm. anybody uh, of any political tradition, cultural, you name it, stripe, always has been always will be. Um, it is not a bland, moderate, middle of the road, look at any particular issue and just, you know, hold out in the middle. It's not that, it's Jesus and mm. Jesus's message and ardently following him and bringing a spirit of truth and courage and love and deep humility uh, to that. And that's what we're invited to. And uh, that's part of why I love and am deeply grateful to places like Oak Brook and the the song that Dan seeks to sing there. Mm. Can you just come and preach that sermon over and over <laughs> and over again? We, we need more of that. And I say that for my own heart. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that to point fingers. It's just, it's something I feel like we are so in the waters that we swim in today that we yeah. just need to be reminded over and over again of, of that truth of, of where we need to uh, put our focus and our attention and the fact that, um, you know, the only framework that we really need to be working with is, is that of the gospel and the hope and the redemption that comes along with it. That is where our hope is. And so, gosh, thanks so much for reminding us of that and of pointing us there. That's, 
so good, so needed today. Uh, you know, I, I joked about, um, hey, will you come bring that sermon? But you actually are coming to preach at our church on July 16th. We are mm-hmm. so excited to have you. And I, I've heard that you're, I heard through the rumor uh, mill that you're um, preaching that day. The title of your message is The Fellowship of the Withered Hand. And I know this is something you've been talking about and um, have, have kind of been speaking about. I'm just wondering if you could give, especially for our context here in Oak Brook, uh, give us a little preview of what you're going to be preaching on and uh, why we should be excited about that. Well, it, it actually, it really is uh, connected very much to the celebration of personal inadequacy. And uh, it's actually taken from a story that uh, folks listening to us who are uh, interested in the Bible much uh, may know is actually told in three of the Gospels about a uh, man who was in the synagogue one day when Jesus came and he suffered from a withered hand. And in a setting like that, that's the last thing you would want people to know about you. But I won't get deeply into this story, but we'll talk about that on that weekend. Actually, Jesus highlights it in a way that uh, looks quite surprising, if not even a bit callous. But it's in the process of uh, creating a moment in which that becomes evident and clear that healing and uh, a new kind of life and a new acceptance and a new deliverance from shame comes. And so what we're actually invited into together is something that in that kind of online spiritual community that has emerged over the last couple of years for me, we'll talk about as uh, the fellowship of the withered hand, where uh, one of the things that we'll often talk about, people will sometimes summarize the first three steps of the 12 steps, which come from an attempt to recapture Christian discipleship. Those first three steps uh, admitted that I had become powerless over this problem. My life's unmanageable. Came to believe a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Made the decision to turn my life and will over to God. They sometimes get summarized as I can't, he can, I think I'll let him. Hmm. So that's what we'll be talking about in Oak Brook. And I'm looking forward to that very much. Well, we are looking forward to it too. We cannot wait to have you. Uh, Lots of excitement about you coming here. So we... We have it marked and we are ready for you. And we, like I said, are super excited about the fact that you're coming. So thanks so much for joining us. I have one more question before for you before yeah. you leave today. I know you have other things to do. You have lots going on. So I appreciate you taking the time. But one question I ask everyone who comes on this podcast, it's called Deeper Still. And uh, that kind of came from my own journey, this becoming that we're talking about that you know, we get to these moments in our life where we think we're doing okay. Uh, we think we are, you know, we've kind of arrived in some ways or we've kind of figured out a few things um, that we're like, okay, I got I got this. And then we hit a moment where we say, he says, uh-uh, you actually don't have this. And he calls us to go deeper. And just when he calls us to go deeper and we think we've got it again, he calls us to go deeper still. And so, John, what's a place in your own life right now where God is calling you to go deeper still? Hmm. Uh, you know, for me, it would be, um, in coming to grips more and more and more with the reality that I am not in control. Mm. And so I can't control people in my life, including people that I'm very close to. 
Um, I can't control um, reputation. I can't control work or the response to it. Um, I can't control the aging process. And those are all things that um, I certainly would have known in an abstract way 20 years ago, if you would have asked me about them. But experiencing them uh, as realities that impact my thoughts deeply and my emotions deeply is a very different thing than just abstract awareness. And so um, finding God uh, as the one in whom I can put my trust when I know mm -hmm. that I cannot be in control, um, that's very much been the deeper journey of these last few years. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Thanks for your honesty. Thanks for your vulnerability. Thanks for reminding us that it doesn't matter um, who we are or how long we've been at this, that God is constantly at work in our lives. He's constantly shaping us and calling us to just a deeper relationship with Him. So thanks for modeling that. Thanks for uh, taking the time out of your busy day to be here today. Like I said, we're so excited to see you in a few weeks. And so um, we'll look forward to meeting you face to face then. But until then, uh, go go in peace. May God continue to bless you as you are doing all the things that you're doing. I'm loving the um, Become New. I love your daily teachings. So thank you for reminding me every day that every day is a new beginning and that uh, God is inviting me in to be present with him. I so appreciate you for that. Thank you very much, Sue Ann. This was really, really fun, and I'll look forward to seeing everybody out there in just a very short time. Sounds great. Thanks, John. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I do, especially as we continue to put before us that question that God calls us to time and time again, and that John models for us so well, and that he's devoted so much of his life and teaching to. And that question is, who is God calling me to become this day? And I hope that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what things in your life today that feel out of control or that are out of control, that you'd continue to lean into that question, lean into the love and the grace of God and the people he's placed in your life and trust that he is at work in all things because I tell you, he is. Do be sure to check out Become New at becomenew.com. That's not rocket science. You can find it there. You can subscribe to John's daily teachings. You can learn more about his passion and his ministry, particularly around this idea of spiritual formation and leadership. And of course, don't forget to join us at Christ Church on our Oak Brook campus on July 16th, where John will be preaching live on the Fellowship of the Withered Hand. And of course, you can always join us online if you can't be here physically with us at Christchurch.us. Well, as always, thanks so much for being here today. We will have a few more episodes as the summer goes on, so do be sure to stop back. But until then, have a great day and go in God's grace.